Welcome to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Been a long time, I know. Brian here, and this is episode number 58 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay. When last we left off, I recorded an episode, what, end of July, I think, and then I had to shift my focus towards getting uh, the apartment ready for the move. That took a lot longer and cost a lot more money than I thought it would, and in the end, we got it done, but at great cost, financially, and also cost of my physical well-being. Uh, Let's see, so... I got it all done, I can go into the stories of all that going down, but I'm trying honestly to forget it, so we're not going to go into it here. Um, If you've been following me on Facebook, you know. Uh, Let's see, but, you know, uh, aside from that, just, you know, I haven't been playing too many games. I had to reinstall Windows on my main computer, and I'm getting it back to where I think everything is working okay. Um... I did reinstall um, the Division 2, and it seems to be working, but I'm going to play a little bit before I go to bed after recording tonight, so we'll see if it actually works today. Um, Let's see, what else? I'm still reinstalling stuff off of Steam, so not too much going on on the home gaming front. Um, Arcade-wise, still working my Saturday shift at the arcade, and I come in an hour early so I could get some uh, gaming in. I'm still trying to break a million in Robotron, and it's usually the usual spot. Um, between levels 30 and 39 are the hardest in the game, and I get my game pretty much ended right there, at somewhere in between levels 30 and 39. And my scores are right around 900,000. I know if things break my way, and I can get some uh, good points off of the brain stages. I can break a million while still in the 30s as far as levels go, but it's tough. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I've got to go and um, pick a couple of people's brains, like uh, Galaxian, who is on uh, on uh, Twitch. He streams mostly like twice a week, usually like Friday night or Saturday night, and once during the week. I need to pick his brain about uh, Robotron strategies because I'm really, really close, and it's a personal goal of mine to score a million on that game. Um, I played Star Wars a few times, and uh, my highest score is right around a million seven, and, you know, just playing the usual stuff, you know, trying to sort of chill out, relax, and have some fun before starting my shift at the arcade. Um, Let's see. Uh, So, yeah, I've checked emails and voicemails and still nothing out there. So, once again, if you guys have any thoughts, comments, as long as you're nice, because God only knows I deleted a comment off of uh, my Facebook page because somebody was being a jerk. Um... As long as you're nice, you can ask what you will and say what you will. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, if you got a game you want me to cover, or 
um, some other things you want to talk about, arcades and that kind of thing, hey, hit me up, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, we've got a number four voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. And as always, I've got a strong media, a social media presence, I should say. Jeez, I'm a little rusty. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, you just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. Um, there is a discussion group that is called Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast. I also have that as well. Um, I do need to start posting more questions. I've been negligent as I try to recover from this move. Um, also, on Instagram, I am at Arcade Addict Brian. On Twitter, I am at Arcade Addict underscore B. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show if you're so inclined. So, hey, hit me up. Let's have a little discussion and let's see where we go with it. All right, then. So, let's get right on with the show. Uh, not too crazy. I got a couple of things here and an on the road segment at the end. So let's get right on to this show and get this going. And that is Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Pinball Classic Arcade, Monroe, Michigan. Um, one day while I was on Facebook, uh, somebody in a thread uh, was speaking about an arcade down in Monroe complete with pictures. Um, I am a little bit of familiar with the Downriver area. Um, I used to go down there for uh, a couple of my jobs. And, you know, I pretty much know what's what and what's where. Um, he said it was in the uh, Monroe Mall, and I knew exactly where that was. So uh, one day uh, in July of last year, when I took my godson to the airport to visit family, uh, I decided to take the drive down there from the airport to see what was going on. Um, once I pulled into the Mall of Monroe and I walked in, the first thought I had was, my God, this mall is very dead. <laughs> I mean, brick and mortar would have a field day exploring this place. Um, it's a single level mall, and I want to say probably about 85 to 90% of the storefronts are, are closed. I'm hoping it makes a comeback because, you know, being a mall rat from the 80s, you know, a good mall with some nice stores or some local flavor is always a good thing. And, you know, if it's got, you know, decent stores and stuff, people will go and shop there, you know, as long as the prices aren't crazy. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I was walking through the mall and I was like, wow, this is really crazy. I mean, there were only a few stores open, uh, including a moderately update, uh, movie theater, um, I think it's the Mercury uh, movie theater uh, chain that was in there, but I can't remember exactly. It's been over a year since I've been there. Um, so yeah, I just kept walking through the mall, and before long I found the arcade. Um, it was in a small storefront, but it had enough space to make it you know, legitimate. 
Um, they had at when I went there, they had 20 pinball machines and 10 arcade machines. Now, considering that it was a small storefront, this is the kind of place that having uh, multi-cade machines make the most sense. They did have a Williams multi-cade in there, which was really cool. That's the first time I actually saw Williams multi-cade. Um, there were there's nice video game art and pinball back glasses at the entrance and on the walls, which was you know really cool. And two flat screen TVs uh, on the far wall. You know, just walking into the place, I kind of got the vibes from my home mall arcade in uh, Trumbull Mall. And, you know, if but it was like if the owners had spent some money to make the arcade look nice rather than just putting a bunch of video game uh, machines in, the, you know, in a storefront, you know. So, you know, I was, you know, I, it was a nice feeling. So, you know, I spent some time in there. I, I spent, oh, goodness, I want to say like, I want to say like five dollars in there. I played some pinball machines. I played the video games. the The video games seemed to work pretty decent. The pinball machines was it was a pretty neat, nice mix of uh, uh, state of the art stern machines and old school uh, pinball machines. Like they had a meteor machine, which I hadn't seen in quite some time, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, all in all, it's a pretty decent experience. I uh, got a nice little bit of nostalgia mixed in with some uh, interesting games. You know, it was a little bit out of the way for me, but if you live in the Downriver area, it's worth the drive over there. I haven't been there since uh, the day I went there, which was July 2nd of 21. So, you know, they may have changed some games, although I haven't seen anything on uh, Facebook from them in some time because... Uh, they do have a Facebook page, but um, I haven't seen them post anything from there in a while, so I don't know if they changed the uh, changed any machines or not. So, you know, that's my rundown for Pinball Classic Arcade, and there will be an arcade review coming for that. And with that done, let's immediately pivot into Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hope, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arsed in the heather, chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. Yeah. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not gonna buy a hemorrhoid clip. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Gateway to Appshy. Now, the first time I played this game was for the ColecoVision, and later on in life I was able to get a copy of it for my Commodore 64, and the games are pretty much the same. Um, but yeah, this was like the first action RPG I ever played. I mean, aside from actually Venture technically is an action RPG, but there aren't that many RPG elements. It's just uh, dungeon running, you know, at its like most pre primitive level, let's just say. All right. So let's get some information from Wikipedia and we'll go from there. Gateway to Apshai is an action-adventure game for the Commodore 64, ColecoVision, and Atari 8-Bit family, developed by the Connolly Group and published by Epix as a prequel to Temple of Apshai. It is a more action-oriented version of Temple of Apshai with smoother and faster graphics, streamlined controls, fewer role-playing video game elements, and fewer room descriptions. 
In Gateway to Apshai, the player assumes the role of an unarmed adventurer who tries to survive in a series of increasingly difficult dungeon levels filled with both treasure and monsters. Each level is played within a freely selectable dungeon. Level 8 of the dungeon perpetually repeats until the player runs out of lives, ending the game. Uh, let's see, the plot is... Uh, the player's character is summoned to the chambers of an old priest called Merlis, who informs him that he is the son of the greatest warrior of Apshai, and that it is written in the prophecy that only he can reclaim the fabled temple of Apshai and rid the land of its monsters and curses. The game covers the gateway to Apshai, which they have to clear in order to reach the temple of Apshai. Okay, the gameplay. The player is initially armed with a dagger and clad in leather armor. As play progresses, they obtain new weapons, armors, potions, eyeglasses, and scrolls containing magical spells. Various enemies, ranging from simple rats and snakes to giants, inhabit the dungeon. The player must kill them with weapons or magical spells. The levels become progressively harder to survive as the player descends deeper and deeper into the dungeon. Each dungeon is covered in complete darkness that illuminates the dungeon rooms and corridors that are explored. The gateway consists of 8 levels, each consisting of 16 dungeons, each consisting of 60 rooms, for a total of 7,680 rooms. The player gets approximately 6.5 minutes to explore each level. Once time passes, if they are still alive, they advance to the next deeper level. Also, if you are able to gain uh, enough magic items, or get enough magic items or you kill enough of the enemies in the dungeon you get bonuses to your statistics um i think you have what is it strength dexterity and constitution and yeah if you kill enough monsters during a level you get a bonus to one of the or one of the three or uh, a combination of the three uh let's see the reception soft line calls gateway to apshai quote a great game enthralling end quote Ahoy praises the game's size and recommended the two people play together. It concluded that Gateway to Apshai is, quote, a marvelous game, a must for D&D freaks, end quote. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Um, High Res called the game, quote, well-designed, fun to play, end quote, and liked the graphics and sound, but criticized the lack of a save game feature. I'm wondering if uh, High Res is a modern-day uh, magazine, because let me tell you something. Until about 1985 or 86 even, uh, when Nintendo came out, or, or the computer games of the early to mid-80s, none of these games had save features. <laughs> you know, if, you didn't ha if it wasn't disc-driven, you didn't have a save. That's just how it was. Uh, let's see, the Addison Wesley book of Atari software... And of 1984 gave the game an overall B rating, concluding that it was, quote, a better game in many ways, end quote, to Temple of Apshai because of the faster pace, fewer keyboard commands, and cartridge format. Yeah, I agree with that. I played Temple of Apshai, and yeah, it's not that fun. Nowhere near as fun as Gateway is, in my opinion. Um, computer and video games rated the ColecoVision version 64% in 1989. Okay, and that's all the information about it. Okay, my experiences with it. Uh, the first game, first version of this game I encountered was the ColecoVision version, as I said, and I was playing it constantly at the video connection. 
like I've previously said, two of my chief, chief obsessions were video games and Dungeons and & Dragons. If I found a game that combined the two, I could not be happier. I loved the action, the monsters, the paranoia of finding a treasure chest and trying to make sure it wasn't trapped, the sense of panic when I encountered the lightning-fast Black Mamba and was hoping that my weapons were powerful enough to kill it before it killed me. <laughs> the memories, I tell ya. Um, I remember getting Temple of Abshai for my Commodore 64 years later, and I remember I didn't like it at all. It was too slow, more turn-based and action-based, and I was much happier when I found Gateway for my Commodore. This was one of the first action RPGs I ever played, and it was a great one. And that's my thoughts and experiences with Gateway to Abshai. Um, if you played this game at all, um, or even uh, have recently discovered it, uh, there is a guy who... I. Does he? Yeah, he actually speedruns uh, Gateway to Abshai, actually, now that I think about it. But yeah, I mean, if you played this game and you liked it or you didn't like it, let me know. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, let's move on to a brief little synopsis into The Silver Ball. Silver Ball, Star Trek, 1979 version, made by Bally, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let's see. I took some information from IPDB.org, uh, and I have a little thing with my experiences with this as well, so let's do that. Um, let's see. Of course, this was the first pinball machine that was uh, you know, modeled after the uh, Star Trek TV series and the upcoming uh, Star Trek motion picture movie, which was also released in 1979. Um, I noticed when I first saw this saw this machine that it was more it was based more on the classic uh, Star Trek uh, TV series than it was the actual movie. I mean, I didn't mind either way, you know, because you know it's a it's a pinball machine based on Star Trek. Of course I'm going to love it. Um, but yeah, let's do some information off of IPDB. Um, okay, this is an interesting little thing I found out. Uh, early versions of the Bat Glass uh, showed the Enterprise crew dressed in uniforms from the TV series. But to promote the movie that was coming out at the same time as this machine, the Bat Glass art was changed early in the production run to show them dressed in single color clothing as the uniforms were in Star Trek the Motion Picture. Uh, in addition, uh, the two playfield plastics were changed to feature Lieutenant Ilea, who was portrayed by the late Persis Kambata. I found that interesting. Uh, these early t uh, production TV version backglasses have a large white trademark symbol 
after the name. Artist Kevin O'Connor's signature is shown in white. The modified movie version glass has a smaller trademark in, in a black color. The artist's name is shown in red. And in the lower right corner is additional license and trademark text not found in the TV version. Also pictured in this listing is a third version of a back glass made by Bally but did not appear on any game. It is identical to the movie version except it has no trademark after the name. It has no adhesive credit sticker in the credit window and it was one of approximately 25 to 30 glasses that were obtained many years ago from a man who owned a warehouse that was used by Bally. We believe these glasses were considered flawed or for lack of trademark symbol and were set aside not to be used on any machine. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, according to artist Kevin O'Connor, the original back glass art had the character on the left shooting a humanoid, but that had to be changed to a ball of energy due to demands by the show's producers that no one be shown being killed. Uh, the humanoid can be seen on the original backlash artwork shown in the book Pinball Art, which is interesting. I think I actually saw I think I actually saw that where it's shooting a humanoid, but I could be wrong about that. Um, okay, my experiences with it. Uh, I used to play this machine at a bar at the southern terminus of Main Street at Seaside Park. I love this machine, even though for me it was tough. Then again, I, if it was 1979, I was, what, 10 years old going on 11? So, yeah, pinball machines were a little tough for me. Um, let's see. Uh, I did find it in emulation recently, thanks to Pinside.org, so I can play it whenever I like. It's a fun machine with plenty of shots to make, and once you know the secret shot on the right side of the machine, which not only returns the ball to the plunger for relaunch, you also collect your bonus and you can seriously rock the machine for high scores. I like this machine a lot more than the Next Generation machine by Williams, which in my opinion is way too busy, and it severely punishes you for missing shots, or the 2014 Stern machine, which is just too fast for me, which is pretty much typical of all stern machines of the current generation. Uh, this machine had a production run of almost 17,000 units, which is pretty substantial for 1979. This is a great old school table. And that's my little thing on uh, the Star Trek machine made by Bally in 1979. Um, if you've played this machine, or if you owned it, or if you've ever seen it out on your, you know, out, you know, out and about, uh, hey, let me know. ArcadeAddictRyan at gmail.com Okay, and finally, in the short show, we're going to go on the road. Uh, this recording was made in January 15, 2021. Um, talking about something that I saw on a uh, Facebook post about how somebody who really loved video games but didn't have... Uh, a lot of arcades near him and that it was like a really uh, a major uh, trek to get to uh, a town with an arcade in it and then that got me to thinking about all the arcades that were near me and the game rooms and the uh, stores and bodegas and newsstands that had games in them and I realized that I was pretty lucky as a kid so yeah let's get in the car Let's start her up, turn on some tunes, and let's go. Mm -hmm. 
Hey folks, Brian here, and this is another segment of On the Road, first of 2021. Um, I just listened to the Retroist podcast where he did an overview of Defender, and he was talking about how he wasn't able to get to the arcade as much as he wanted to when he was a kid, and... Um, he didn't have the money to spend on Defender and to supplement what he was talking about and I've already done my little bit for Defender I think back in like episode 4 or 5 Defender's a really hard game and you have to put in the time and the money to get good at it there's no getting around it I mean that, that was typical of all of Larry DeMar's uh, games, Uh, starting with Defender, moving on to Stargate, going to Robotron, going to Sinistar, um, and right on through to Smash TV. Um, That's just how it is. You have to put in the time and the money. There's no getting around it, just none. There are no shortcuts with getting good at Defender. Like there are shortcuts like getting good at a game like, say, Asteroids because there were certain things that you could do um, to rack up scores, although getting really good at the game required you just getting down and dirty with it. You know, that was how it was back in the 80s. There are very few games that you could really shortcut learning how to get good at. You had to put in the time, you had to put in the money, you had to find out tips and tricks and strategies from other people so on and so forth um but that's not about this that this is not about that i should say um and i realize now after doing this podcast for what three years yeah three years i started in 2018 um three years that i was really really lucky as a kid um The more I talk to people and the more that I find out through Facebook groups and websites and emails and phone calls to my own show, that, you know, the more discussion I have about it, you know, I realize that I was pretty lucky. And by that, I mean the majority of people who grew up during the golden age of video games, which of course is, once again, from 1978 to 1983, that five-year window, um, they only had one, maybe, the majority of them had one, maybe two arcades to go to throughout their childhood and teen years. I mean, I was lucky, and so was, like, you know, my friend Mark and all the guys that I knew back in the day, um, growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that we had no less than five arcades within a 30-minute drive of, you know, of town. Now, my friend Mark lived, like, oh, goodness, I want to say, like, eight miles north of me like in the middle of, you know, pretty much the middle of uh, Trumbull, Connecticut, which is the 
you know, first town to the north of Bridgeport. Um, and the majority of guys that I knew, you know, that when I would hang out in arcades and game rooms, they either lived in Bridgeport or Trumbull. Um, so, I mean, just to break it down, you know, uh, of course we had my, the home base Trumbull Mall Arcade. Um, then going from there, you had Spanky's, which was on the south end of my, my neck of the woods. You had Wizards, which was only in existence for about a year, year and a half, I think. Um, you had Milford Wreck, which of course, as I've said since I started this podcast, that was the mecca. That was the largest arcade I've ever been in, although I have designs on going to Galloping Ghost Arcade, um, you know, once everything settles down with COVID. So, you know, that's something I'm going to end up doing. Um, so yeah, I had, you know, had Milford Rec Arcade, you had, um, um, Connecticut Post Mall Arcade, and you had Spanky, I mean, not Spanky's, you had, uh, Arnie's Place out in Westport, and for, I think, about a year or two years, you had Gompers in Orange. That's actually six. Um, and then there were various places throughout town that had, you know, video games, you know, mom and pop shops and bodegas and stuff like that. Even the supermarkets and um, standalone department stores got into it for a little while, you know, and there was a time where there was a, there were very few places you couldn't go. Oh, that's right. Lafayette Plaza Arcade in downtown Bridgeport. Sorry, I missed that one. Even though that was in existence for maybe about I'd say probably about a year, maybe two, maybe a year and a half. But all of these places were within a 30-minute drive of my house or a bus ride or a train ride, a bus ride or two bus rides, you know. And even though I didn't feel I was very lucky at the time because I was such, I was so addicted to video games throughout my childhood that um, it was more like there were times where you know the, there you know there weren't often very there were often times where I had the wherewithal to get to a place I wanted to go and but I didn't have the money and I had the money to go there and I had the money to spend there. There weren't that many opportunities that way, unfortunately. Um, so, I mean, and like I said, I've been talking to people and, you know, participating in conversations on, you know, um, message board sites like Atari Age and, um, Oh, goodness, I can never remember. Um, I can't remember the other place I go to. Jeez, it's, um, you know, that's pretty bad. I just cannot remember the name of the place. But, yeah, it's another message board that I go to, you know, and I, you know, read posts, you know, respond to posts if the fancy strikes me. And, of course, I post... Um, show notes about the latest uh, episode of this podcast, you know, just trying to get, you know, my footprint out there and trying to get people 
to listen to my show. But the more I talk to them, I mean, it's an overwhelming majority. I'd say it's probably like 90% of people who didn't have a lot of arcades, maybe one. If they were really lucky, maybe two. Or maybe like they had a showbiz pizza or a Chuck E. Cheese in the area before Chuck E. Cheese went corporate and started just going with uh, ticket redemption games rather than video games. You know, that was, I remember, um, I mean, I talked about it, i trying to think in like one of the early episodes, uh, there was a Chuck E. Cheese in Fairfield um, on the east side of Fairfield, uh, which was moderately easy to get to. Uh, you had to have a bike or you had to take a bus out there. Um, there was one time where I was hanging out at, uh, Trumbull Mall Arcade and I had a few dollars on me and I just wanted, I've been hearing about Chuck E. Cheese because, um, this was when Pac-Man first came out in 1980 and, um, the two Pac-Man machines we had at Trumbull Mall Arcade were, were hacks, you know, they, they, they were bootleg machines, you know, they were put in, you know, they were basically for these really, like, it, I mean, the controls for that, those Pac-Man machines were not tight at all. They were, like, really, really loose uh, joysticks for it, and also, I think they got, um, yeah, they got uh, a hack, a Pac-Man hack called Gobbler. That's what both of those machines were. And I have been told that there was like a Pac-Man machine out at Chuck E. Cheese in Fairfield. So one day when I think it was a snow day um, in 1980, um, it was was winter 1980. I'm close to, I'm about to turn 12 years old. So... I remember I had a couple of dollars left over from, you know, the games I was playing at Trumbull Mall Arcade, and there was a small uh, bus that would go from Trumbull Mall out to Fairfield and back. I think it was, I think it ran like once an hour or something like that. Um, So yeah, I got on, and this was back when bus fare was cheap, I think. In 1980, I think bus fare was like 50 cents or something like that. You know, 60 with a transfer to wherever you, you know, whatever bus you wanted to take after that bus. Um, So, yeah, I went out there. And, you know, I, I remember, yeah, I remember I actually went in that Chuck E. Cheese and they had, they had several video games of the day. And, yeah, they had a cabaret uh, um, Pac-Man machine. I mean, it wasn't the full-size yellow machine. It was the cabaret white machine. That machine I've only seen twice. Uh, the first time was there. And the second time was at Valley Steakhouse in Stratford. They had a cabaret. That's the machine that I put my all-time high score on Pac-Man at. I think I got to like what, if I'm not mistaken, I think I got to like the fourth key or something like that which was, that's respectable. That's respectable. I mean, you were a Pac-Man master if you got to the ninth key, you know, but yeah, I got to the fourth, which is, you know, like I said, respectable. 
Okay, so I just pulled up to one of my stops, so I shall return. Okay, I'm back. So, considering that, you know, I grew up poor and I didn't have a lot of money to go to these arcades as often as I wanted to, you know, I didn't realize how lucky I was. I mean, first of all, to have that many arcades in, you know, that close of proximity, I mean, the only places that I've heard about that had an area like that was like a couple places in New York and, uh, you know, like Wildwood, New Jersey, um, which I actually went down to in, goodness, what year was that? I think it was 1991. Um, I actually went down there for a uh, online group get-together, which was kind of cool. But, yeah, I mean, I was, I was really fortunate. And I was fortunate to have friends like Mark who, you know, not only did he allow me to tag along like the, you know, annoying younger brother um, to go to Milford Rec, to go to Gompers, to go to Arnie's place and stuff like that. Um, not only did he, you know sort of, you know, so he sort of took me under his wing a little bit. Um, not only was I lucky that way, but, you know, um, I also had, you know, a mother who was giving of herself. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I was always you know, on my mother to give, you know, to give me like, you know, $5, $10. And this is, of course, in between my allowance, you know, you know, so I could go up to the mall and hang out there all day and play video games. And, you know, I would also, I mean, this is how exacting I was when it came to my time in the mall when I had money. Um, I basically... When I first started doing it, my mother would give me like $5. Okay, so back then, I'm trying to think what year that was. That was like 79, I think, like summer of 79. Um, I would, I would plan it out meticulously. I mean, it only got, you know, it only got like, wor not worse, but it only was planned out more when my mother would give me more money. Like say when, you know, uh, the money she would give me was up to $10. Um, but yeah, I would plan it out. I would have, I'd be like, okay. And this is probably the first inclinations that I realized that I had a bit of an addiction problem when it came to video games. But I had to plan it out to where... I, with that $5, let's start there. That $5 would be like, okay, it's 35 cents to get up there by the bus. Okay, so that round trip is 70 cents. That leaves me with $4.30. Um, then from there, I would be like, okay, when I get there, I'm only gonna try, I'm only gonna spend $3 on games. So now I've got like $1.30. And from then, I would have to use that $1.30 
to figure out something to eat, you know, a snack or something or, you know, something to drink. I mean, that's the reason why I got my mother after, you know, discussions and begging and whining and pleading <laughs> after, you know, every tactic that a, you know, if we're talking 1980, I'm 11. So a, a tactic that an 11 year old boy will, you know, take with his mother. Um, that's when I got her to raise my allowance to $10. And then it was like, okay, uh, I can spend $5 at the arcade. At this point, yeah, the bus fare, I think, had been raised to 50 cents. So I had to take a dollar out of that. So I'd have $4 left to uh, get something to eat, get something to drink, and maybe buy a book. You know, because paperback books were only like, you know, on average, like a dollar fifty, two dollars, or something like that. I mean, of course, unless it was like this, a big, thick book, like let's say uh, Dune or something like that. Those were like three fifty or something like that. Um, so I would just plan the, I would just plan it out meticulously, you know. And of course, <laughs> you know, as a true addict will do, you know. You make all these plans, and the monkey is not his monkey is not going to jump on your back and you know sink his sink his teeth into you. But as soon as I walked into that arcade, that's exactly what would happen. You know, seven times out of ten. You know, only if I was absolutely starving would I actually stick to plan. Actually, if I was that hungry when I got to the mall, I would go and eat something at Orange Julius first. You know, have myself a Chicago dog with a strawberry Julius. That was my jam. Um, and that, but there were those times where I would walk in there and it never really changed. Of course, this all culminated with the binge of 1982, which I talked about in what episode 19, I think. Um, you know, but there were times where, yeah, I would walk up there. With a twenty, you know, with nineteen dollars and fifty cents, or nineteen dollars and sixty-five cents, or whatever it was, I think the bus fare went up to sixty cents shortly after. They were constant. That was the thing about the transit system in Bridgeport. Um, it was constantly, constantly, um, like almost every year, the bus fares would rise. You know. Um, I mean, thankfully, also, there were a couple of bus drivers who kind of took a shine to me, I guess. Um, one of them, his name was John. I mean, he gave me so many free rides home that it wasn't even, it's not even uh, <laughs> worth mentioning. <laughs> and I didn't, and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, John and John would, you know, talk to me, you know, and give me, you know, give me life advice. And, you know, I would listen to him because, you know, number one, he was doing me a solid by, you know, taking me home, you know, or, you know, taking me into my neighborhood when, you know, it's the end of the night and, you know, he's on his way to the depot after he, you know, you know, he's on his way back to the depot after he completed his last run to the mall. I mean, we're talking, this is what, what, 9 o'clock or yeah, like nine o'clock, nine thirty, actually when, you know, the last bus would, you know, arrive in Trumbull Mall, and then he would just 
turn all of the running lights off, you know, or, you know, or at least the ones that would say it's an active bus. And, you know, he would just drive straight down, um, straight back to the bus depot, wherever that was. I never could figure out where the depot was. Um, and there was another driver who I cannot remember his name, but he would do the same thing sometimes. You know, I would just, you know, walk up to him, you know, uh, when he pulled up, because basically he would pull up, you know, he, he or John, they would pull up, drop off whatever passengers they had, and they would just shut off all of the active lights for the bus route, you know, like the sign with the number on it and, you know, where they're going and whatnot, you know, and they would just... Oh, are you kidding me? Wow. Wow, people... People just doing stupid stuff. Okay. And he would just... You know, drop off his passengers. And, I mean, at this point, I'd been at the mall all day. I'd walk the mall. You know, I figure... I mean, especially if I walked up there to begin with. I think I would walk, like, what... I'd say probably at least six to eight miles, depending on if I walked home at the end of the night. All I know is that my legs were tired and my feet were killing me at the end of the night because, you know, know, I'm just doing the usual mall thing, you know, walking around, you know, hanging out in the arcade, you know, going to the bookstores, going to the department stores, you know, just basically killing time. Um, And... I remember I would just walk up to where the bus would let out and if it was John or if it was one of the or the other driver whose name I cannot remember for the life of me and I mean I I see the guy in my head he was like um you know this you know average size dark-skinned black man and he was really nice he was always nice to me and but you know John was sort of like a second grandfather to me in some ways um, and I would just go to the, I would just walk up to the bus and not, you know, walk up to him and I would just ask, you know, uh, can I, can I catch a ride with you to go home? And, you know, nine times out of 10, probably even 49 times out of 50, they would say, yeah, come on, get on. And, you know, I would just get on, sit in the seat right across from where the, you know, from the driver's position And, you know, they would just drive, you know, they would just drive all the way to where my, um, you know, right into my neighborhood. They would let me off on Main Street. Or if it was the other guy, he would take another way to get to the bus depot. Um, And he would just let me off on Beachmont Avenue right at Platt Street. That's literally like a block from my house. So I was, yeah, I was a lucky kid things could have turned out so much different for me as you guys will find out or have found out by now when I talk about, um, when I talk, when I do story time in episode 35, (laughs) I mean, I haven't done it yet. I mean, I just recorded episode 34 last week and I'm putting it out this week, this weekend, you know, probably tonight, you know, it is what for, you know, time check purposes, Friday, uh, January 15th, 2021. Um, I'm putting, probably putting that out either tonight or tomorrow night. Um, 
but yeah, they would just let me off right in my neighborhood and I would just go home and that would be the end of the night. You know, I was a lucky kid and now that I'm 52 and now that I've done this podcast and and I'm casting my memory back, you know, as to all the, you know, all the good times and the not so good times and in a couple cases, the bad times I had you know, going to arcades and, you know, being an arcade, you know, junkie, a video game head, you know, um, I was lucky that, you know, things turned out for me as well as they did, you know, and I was also lucky that I had so much that was close to me and I had people, if I couldn't get there on my own auspices, that who would take me there, you know, I mean, you know, just it, just talking about Mark for a second, that's why I speak of him so glowingly on my podcast, because, you know, you know, Mark didn't know me from Adam, you know, he could have just told me, you know, he could have been just as abusive as some of the other guy, other regular guys in the arcade when, you know, in, in regard to me. And of course, these these guys who were abusive to me, they always did it in numbers, always in packs. They were freaking cowards, you know, you know, it was always, it it was always, you know, even now, and even when, even being an 11 year old kid, 1980, you know, they, you know, only times they would start talking crap to me is when they knew they had somebody's back. It's not like I'm like, you know, Daniel-san from the Karate Kid or anything. I didn't know martial arts. I wasn't even really that much of a fighter. I would fight if I was pushed to it and I had absolutely no other choice. But, you know, I wasn't somebody who, you know, who's raised, like, in the projects, like, you know, uh, Beardsley Terrace projects where, yeah, you had to learn to fight. You know, if you lived in the Bear, in Bearsley Terrace, you had to learn how to fight because, yeah, you were going to be a victim the entire time, you know? I mean, that's just how it was. I mean, that's just how it is living in the freaking projects. You know, I was lucky enough that I never had to live in the projects, but I was around them enough, you know, Beardsley Terrace, um, P.T. Barnum, Father Panic Village, uh, the Marina, all of them. You know, in the 70s and 80s, they were places you did not know how to, you did not go unless you knew how to defend yourself and protect yourself. Because, yeah, you know, there was, there could be uh, any moment in time if you're screwing around in those places that you could get mugged or worse. You know, crime was on the rise in Bridgeport all through the 70s and really started uh, ramping up in the 1980s. That's just how it was. You know, but anyway, I'm going to stop right now. So I'm just going to pause this. Hold on. Okay. I'm back. I mean, yeah, that's how it was in Bridgeport. You know, just, it was, I mean, I remember getting off on another tangent. (laughs) Yeah. Big surprise. Right. Um, I was one of my, one of the people I follow on, uh, YouTube is, uh, Vlad TV. And he talks to mostly rappers and uh, people in entertainment. And he had uh, Bridgeport's own Michael Jai White on. And Michael Jai White, he was talking about, 
you know, how he grew up on the east end of Bridgeport. And, you know, I, I lived on the east end of Bridgeport a pretty significant portion of my life. You know, like I said, Michael Jai White and I are exactly the same age. I think, I think he may be like one year older than me. I think he's 53, I'm 52. Um, and he was talking about, you know, he was heavily involved in, you know, the drug scene in the uh, 70s, late 70s, early 80s, you know. And, or actually, I should say, I take that back in the, in the early mid eighties because he started as like a teenager. I think he's like 14 when it started. And like I said, I lived on and off on the east end of Bridgeport uh, at my stepfather's house throughout my life. You know, usually it was for a whole summer. You know, me and my brother would just, you know, live over there. I mean, it was my grandma's, excuse me, my my stepfather and his mother uh, and his brother, they all lived in the same house. Um, my stepfather lived on the ground floor and uh, his mother and his brother lived on the second floor. And Mary Johnson was an absolute sweetheart. You know, I'm proud to call that woman my grandmother because she was wonderful. You know, she, you know, she... Uh, you know, just all the times I spent with her and just, you know, talking to her and listening to her and sitting there and watching, you know, soap operas. That was like one of the few times I actually tolerated soap operas because <laughs> that was a, <laughs> that was a um, major point of television watching contention between my mother and I throughout the majority of my life because... Um, my mother wanted to watch, uh, her soap operas, you know, like, um, oh God, what did she watch? Well, um, Days of Our Lives, um, and, uh, Another World. Those were, those were her jams. Um, she was like an NBC soap opera addict. She, she watched those constantly. And so did my grandmother, now that I think about it. But, you know, I guess, you know, apple tree, not too far from, that kind of thing. Um, so, as I was saying, so, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time, li you know, living and, you know, hanging out over on the east end of Bridgeport. I mean, I've got all kinds of stories that have nothing to do with video games, you know, that I could tell. But I won't bore you any more than I already have. Um, and Michael Jai White was talking about, you know, how things were on the east end of Bridgeport. And, you know, the east end of Bridgeport was not that great in the late 70s going into the 80s. And I can only imagine how it was for him when he was, you know, doing, you know, doing his thing at like 14, 15, 16, 17 years old when things were really, really bad on the east end of town. You know, I didn't, the only time I went over the east end of town during those years was to go get my hair cut at Carter's Barbershop. That was it. You know, I did not mess around over there because, yeah, things were, you know, there was almost, almost nightly, there was either someone got shot or someone got killed over on the east end. And, and it was the same on the West End and the South End, too. You know, mostly around uh, the housing projects. 
but anyway, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about it, you know, I was, I, I was lucky, you know, you know, a lot of it was instincts, you know, I did, you know, my instincts were pretty finely honed, I knew when I was in a situation where I could get into serious trouble, you know, and it was up to me to kind of get out of that situation, and usually I would, and sometimes, yeah, I'll say it, I sometimes I turn tail and ran, you know, I mean, now that I think about it, there was this one time in, like, 1981, where, you know, I'm 12 years old, and I'm, I went downtown, and I went to, um, where did I go, I went to, uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. I went to Lafayette Plaza Arcade. This was shortly before it closed, because I think it closed after that summer, now that I think about it, because this is just when Galaga came out, you know, because I was all about Galaga. <laughs> I mean, for sure. I was, I was, I was, I was neck deep in Galaga anytime I could play it. I mean, Galaga was everywhere. Galaga was at, um, where was it? It was at uh, the Rexall drugstore in the mall. For some reason, the Trumbull Mall Arcade didn't carry it, at least not at first. I think they got it later, like in like 84, 85, something like that. Um, let's see, uh, Bridgeport Train Station had it. Um, Lafayette Plaza Arcade had it. Of course, Milford Rec had it. Of course, Arnie's Place had it. Spanky's had it. You know, it was everywhere. You know, it just was one of those games where, you know, even with its simplicity, you know, it got more complex and harder as it went, and just people were throwing money and money into it. It was a proven money maker in 1981, probably go all the way into like I'd say probably 1983. You know, there were just people who would just play Galaga, um, and I was one of them, but. So I went to uh, Lafayette Plaza Arcade one day, and, you know, this was after I'd already gone to the news corner, and I had gotten uh, my comic books, you know, by this time I had really started collect started collecting comic books, my, my brother got me into them, because he collected comic books, you know, off and on, I mean, he wasn't, like, really, like, serious about it, he would just get it off and on, but... He would get, like, the Avengers and, like, um, you know, every once in a while he'd get X-Men. He would get Thor. You know, he'd get all of, you know, he'd get, like, a, a good portion of them. Then, in 1981, I really started collecting comic books. I started, with, well, I first started with Star Wars, actually, in, like, 78, 77, right after the movie came out. Uh, 77, 70, 78, right in there. I would collect Star Wars comic books. Then Battlestar Galactica came out in 78, going into 79, and I would, I immediately started collecting those. Um, then from there, I would collect those right through, you know, 1980, and then in 81, I started collecting the Avengers and X-Men, and the New Mutants when they came out, and all of the, you know, just all of these other, all these comic books, and so now I had more or less three obsessions. <laughs> Video games, 
Dungeons and Dragons, which I started that in 1981 as well. And, um, and comic books. And it was just one of those things where, so I, I remember that day I had gone to the news corner, played a couple games there, got my comic books. I said, yeah, I'm going to go over to, um, you know, that, that day and I got my allowance. I remember that. No, it wasn't my allowance. I was actually, I got my allowance and my mother gave me extra money to go get my haircut. So I went and, you know, did my thing. And I was like, I'm going to go over to Lafayette Plaza Arcade and play for a little while. You know, play some games over there before I go get my haircut. And, oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't a haircut. No, I had just gone over there because I wanted to. Apparently... I, oh, my mother wanted me to go over to um, my stepfather's house. I remember that because that's, you know, my mother asked me to meet, meet her over there. So, but, you know, I wasn't under any sort of time constraints. That's what it was. Um, so, I went, so, I went to News Corner, got my comic books, went to uh, Lafayette Plaza Arcade, played some games, and there were a couple of kids who were hanging out with me. And you know, we were, and we're playing games and we're talking and, you know, they asked me, you know, one, you know, one of them asked me if, you know, I, you know, they could play doubles, but they had no money. I said, yeah, sure. You know, I remember it's this white kid and this black kid. And so, you know, we played, so I just paid for their, I paid for their games. I think I dropped like $2 or something like that. So I was like, you know, um, it's, I said, you know, it's, you know, nice meeting you guys, but I got to get out of here. And they were like, well, where are you going? And I said, I got to get out of here. I got a place. I got a place to go. I got to go meet my mom. And they're like, nope, you're giving us your money first. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? You guys, you guys are not serious. And sure enough, one of them uh, stepped up to me and took a swing at me. And I ducked the punch, and I was like, okay, this is two against one. I'm not going to win this fight. You know, I'm not a fighter, number one. And number two, you know, yeah, two-on-one two odds in, you know, in a, you know, in a fight just isn't uh, going to work. So I was like, all right, all right, this is how it is, okay. So then, you know, I ran, and I had no problem with it. And I remember we ran through Lafayette Plaza parking lot, down State Street, to the bus station, and I got there like about a minute too early. And they're like, you give us your money or we're gonna kick your ass. And I basically said, all right, all right, all right, no problem. I said, and basically I just dug in my pocket and I took out $3, I gave it to him. I said, that's all I've got. And they were like, all right. And they were like, all right. They let me, and they just took off. And I just been, and of course I, you know, I, apparently I had a rather innocent look on my, you know, innocent countenance in my childhood. That's why I was able to get away with so much crap. <laughs> um, so they believed that that was the last money they had. I was like, dude, I was like, guys. You know, I spent a whole bunch of money playing games with you guys. You guys took most of it. You know, this is all I got left. And they're like, all right, fine. And they ran off. And I was like, oh, you guys are suckers. <laughs> I still had about $25 in my wallet. 
you know, but I played it off. I basically played it off like that was all the money I had left, you know, and yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff I did. I was, like I said, I wasn't a fighter unless 100% pushed to it, you know, and, you know, that's just, those are the kind of things that happened growing up in Bridgeport. Like I said, I was lucky. I was extremely lucky. You know, I could have been, I could, I mean, there was a part of me that was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to, you know, you know, make it to 25 or make it to 21, you know, because of how things were in my hometown. But, you know, I'm getting off the track a little bit, you know, just talking about those kind of memories. But hold on a second. I got stuff to drop off. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. But, yeah, I mean, I think when I finally get Mark in to do an interview, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's such a weird question to ask because it sounds like, um, you know, on a pity trip or something like that. But I'm going to ask him, why was he so nice to me? <laughs> he certainly didn't have to be. But, you know, that's, yeah, I think that's the kind of guy Mark is, you know. But, anyway, I mean, getting back to the original topic at hand, you know, after a nice long uh, tangent with tangents inside the tangent. <laughs> I warned you, folks. I warned you back in episode zero it was going to be like this. Because, yeah, one memory begets another begets another, begets an opinion, begets another thought, and so on and so forth. That's just how my brain works. I can't stop it. Um, so, you know, just in a video gaming sense, I mean, never mind a safety sense or anything like that, I was lucky. I was very lucky um, that I had you know, so many places that had arcades, I mean, had arcades and had game rooms and had standalone machines, some of which I'd, I'd never seen before and so on and so forth. You know, I, the more I talk to people online and participate in conversations about this and how the majority of them, like I said, it's probably about 80 to 90% of the people talk about how they had you know, one arcade, you know, and, you know, close to them, and it was a major undertaking to get to that arcade, because more often than not, they needed, you know, uh, their parents, or an aunt, or an uncle to take them there, and most of the times, they wouldn't, for whatever reason, you know, especially if it had to do with video games, because golly knows the previous generation thinks video games were a massive waste of time. And it's like, yeah, well, and I think about that. I'm just like, well, look what you were doing back in the 50s when you were our age, you know? You know, it was like going to sock hops and, you know, um, if you were lucky or if you were old enough or in high school and you got a car, you know, car races and, you know, always, you know, trying to pick up girls and all that kind of stuff. That's what was going on in the 50s and 60s, just in the 70s and 80s. It kind of made a little bit of a turn because of video games. 
That's all. Every generation will score in the next. You know? And that's just how it is. I mean, I I remember seeing this one kid make this quote in a um, in a Metallica video um, uh, a year and a half in the life of Metallica, which was like the creation of the Black Album in 1989, or excuse me, 1990 and 1991, and then the subsequent tour. And I just remember like about a third of the way through the first tape, because it was like a two-tape set, the, a third of the way through the first tape, you know, they're, the guys who are doing all the filming, they're asking all the kids at a Metallica concert, you know, they're asking meanings of songs and things like that. And there's just one, there's one kid who was kind of standing off from, uh, standing off from like the group that's talking to like, you know, the documenters. Um, and he basically said every generation will score the next and their music. And I was like, that dude is absolutely right. <laughs> you know, cause I just think about it just going in through my mom's generation, going into my generation, going into, you know, my younger cousin's generation, you know, and so forth and so on. And it's true. And it's just not about music. It's just about, it's that age old, um, just that age old thing that teenagers of a certain generation think they know better that think they know it all. They think they know better than their parents. They think they know better than you know, anybody over the age of 25 because anything over 25 is like ancient to them, <laughs> you know? And, you know, it's just that disdain that younger people have for older people and it's reciprocated, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I think about it, I'm like, today's music has no appeal to me at all. Maybe every once in a great while, a song will be written by someone that really captures my attention. I'm like, okay, I want to find out what this, this artist is about. But it hasn't happened. I mean, you know, I've gone, I mean, I mean my musical tastes are stuck in the 80s. That's just how it is, you know. There's no getting around that. That's what I grew up on. That's what sounds the best to me. And it's just how it is. It's my personal preference. I mean, you look at my uh, music list on my phone, and I think I've got like, what, 4,900 songs or something like that. And the overwhelming majority of them are, are before 1990. I can say that. I mean, there's plenty of stuff in the 90s that I love, you know, like some Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, you know, but I basically stuck with what worked for me until it didn't work for me anymore musically, but that's what I'm talking about, you know, how the previous generation looked down their nose at us kids because, you know, we had video games, you know, and... You know, they look down because, you know, now we're not doing our homework. Like, and it's like, like you didn't find excuses not to do your homework back in the day. You know, it's, and you didn't want to go and waste your time with friends, you know, and so forth. 
course you did. Of course you did. But it's just the, the medium through which we wasted our time was different. That's all it is. You know, it, I mean, we're human beings. You know, we are slow to change generation to generation, you know, century to century, even millennia to millennia. We are slow to change. And it's just one of these things where, you know, and it doesn't help that the the current generation and the generation before them share this, like, you know, disdain for one another, you know, about the clothes they wear, the music they listen to, you know, the movies they watch, whatever it is. I mean, it's ridiculous. But anyway, I'm getting off on another tangent. Or is that a rant? I think that's close to rant territory. Anyway, um, so, I mean, you know, with video games, yes, that was what we grew up with. That's what my generation grew up with. And, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I'm still a video game head to this day. I mean, I'm not like a walking encyclopedia of knowledge, but like some guys are. But I know what I know, and I experience, and I know what I experienced, and that's where that's where I take everything from, and that's you know along with once again the retroist and Vic Sage, they are the ones who inspired me to do this podcast because you know they had their stories about you know certain video games when in Vic's case, in Vic's, Vic's case when it came to like the Showbiz Pizza. And, or in the retroist case when, you know, video games came to his neck of the woods. I think he grew up in New Jersey, I think. Um, you know, and, you know, how the game made you feel. I mean, that's what I love about the retroist. He is really good at describing how he felt, you know, when it came to a certain game. You know, and, you know, how it really captured his interest or if it really discouraged him if he wasn't good at it things like that, you know, when he was talking about Defender, you know, he talked about how he got the uh, Atari 2600 version of Defender, which, yeah, it's a different game than the arcade, you know, the premise is still the same, but the execution is radically different, and that's because the 2600 just wasn't capable of, uh, capable of doing the things that a Defender arcade could do. You know, the, the, your your typical run-of-the-mill arcade game, you know, is run off of circuit boards. There are no, you know, how should I put this? There are no, um, I mean, the average memory for uh, an arcade game, if I get my numbers right, was eight, anywhere between 8K and 16K for an arcade game, run straight off of uh, circuit boards. And the Atari 2600 only had 2K of memory, you know, so the games were not going to be up to standard, up to arcade standard. I mean, there were rather genius programmers who made really good arcade adaptations like Star Trek 
like uh, Stargate, actually, the, def the sequel to Defender, the 2600 version of Stargate is a lot better than the 2600 version of Defender, that's for sure. But... So, I mean, so he got Defender, and he played it and played it and played it, and he got, he got good at it, which is, I hate to say it, but not really that hard. I think the highest score on the 2600 version of Defender I ever got was like, what, 600, 700,000 points, something like that. But, you know, and then of course, they would have a kids mode in all of these, um, they would have a kids mode in all of these uh, 2600 games. I think it's, I think that's, that practice started in like 80, in like 80, maybe 81. You know, I know Missile Command had it. I know Asteroids had it, where it was just this really low challenge level game that was, that was geared more towards younger kids, like say about six or seven years old, maybe eight. And... You know, so yeah, he said, you know, he said he got really good at it. Then he tried to apply what he knew in the arcade Defender. And, you know, Defender is a brutally hard machine. I said it when I uh, did my review on Defender, you know, way back in the single digits of the these episodes. Defender is brutally hard. Stargate is even more brutally hard, but Defender is brutal. You learn by getting the crap kicked out of you <laughs> it's one of those kind of games there's no like i said in the beginning of this there's no getting around it you have to take your lumps you know you have to drop two or three dollars in that machine and then watch other people who are actually good at it before you learn you know how to get good at it and then you learn how to apply those things it takes time it really does. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough to have, um, you know, to have strategy guides that helped me get better at these games, you know, these harder games like Defender, like Stargate, you know, and, you know, that's why I bring these things up every so often in time for some strategy, because these books... Um, should be lauded and remembered in a positive light because the only way you knew how to get, only way you learned how to get better at a game is if you had really high levels of natural talent, you know, like Mark did, and Mark had really high levels of video gaming talent, and or, and or, you had uh, people who were video game heads who were constantly playing these games and they were willing to impart the knowledge that they had learned to you and it's like I said when I first started talking about um, how to master the video games by uh, Tom Hirschfeld um, I'm trying to remember what episode that is I think that's like episode 3 or 4 um, I didn't have that because most of the I mean pardon my French, but most of the guys that were regulars in the arcade were assholes. You know, they were. 
I mean, I already related the story about my arcade nickname and, you know, how humiliating that was until I got it in my head that the only reason why this is humiliating is because I'm allowing it to be humiliating to me. And I finally just, you know, I just started ignoring them when they were calling me by my, by my nickname. And if they call me by my real name, and all these dudes knew my real name, so it's not like they had an excuse. But, you know, if they called me by my real name, then they, then I'd deal with them. Then I would speak to them. They call me by my nickname, I wouldn't talk to them. I'd be pretend like I didn't hear them. But anyway, um, so I mean, these kind of books, they would give you strategies and guides and then you would try to apply them in real life and most often they would work, sometimes they wouldn't. And these were the things that you had to have back in the day because, you know, magazines like EGM were only getting off the ground in 1981-82. They were only just starting. I mean, one of the biggest things that EGM did in like 83 was give the complete strategy guide to Dragon Slayer. And, you know, I mean, um, and the only way I knew how to play Dragon Slayer as well as I did before I got that strategy guide was by watching Mark. By watching Mark, by watching Andy, and a couple of other regulars down at uh, Spanky's. Because Spanky's was the only place in the area that had a Dragon Slayer. Even Milford Wreck didn't have Dragon Slayer, which was um, which was mind-boggling to me. I'm like, this is the biggest arcade in the state, and you have literally hundreds of people coming in and out of this place literally every day, and you don't get that game, you know, when it comes out. And I'm sorry, Dragon Slayer came out in 82. You know, and I know everyone says it's 83, but I saw that game in, in 82. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was, but somehow, you know, when, you know, uh, like Big Sage and the Retroist and other people talk about certain games coming out in a certain year, I'm like, no, I saw it before that year. Like, um, everyone says that Defender came out in 81. I'm like, no, it was 80. I saw it in the summer of 1980. You know, the James E. Straight shows. Now, they could have gotten, like, four, I'm not prototype machines, they could have gotten four, like, pre-production or worked out some sort of back backdoor deal or, you know, backroom deal with Williams to get machines, but they had four Defender machines in the summer of 1980, you know, and I will take that to my grave. I could be wrong, but I doubt it, to quote Charles Barkley. I, I may be wrong, but I doubt it. I remember distinctively, it was the summer of 1980. It was like the second year that my aunt would take my brother and I to uh, the Midway, the James E. Strait shows when they would come to Bridgeport in the summer. That was like the second year I go. The first year I went was the summer of 79. And that was fun. I mean, I remember that like it was yesterday because that was the year I discovered the arcade tent and that's when I lost interest in like 90% of what the, what else the Midway had 
you know, when I discovered that RK10, it was over. You know, that's just how it was. Um, but yeah, it was 1980, summer of 80. I don't know how they got those machines from Williams, but they got them. You know, because I just remember going to that tent and I had like $3 or something. I think my aunt gave me like $3 to go play video games. And that was the first machine that I ever saw that cost 50 cents. That was the other thing. That's how I, that's how I knew. And that, and, and then I want to say like in the fall of 1980, Trumbull Mall Arcade got Defender. That's the other reason how I know it got released in 80. It wasn't 81 because Stargate came out in the summer of 81, <laughs> you know? And, you know, it's, it's whatever, you know, it's whatever, but that's how it was. Whoops. Oh crap. I didn't want to go this way. Shh. I'm on too much of a rant. I just missed my turn. Dang it. Oh well. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what, that's how it was for me. Now it could have been that way for everybody else, but that's how it was for me, you know, and you know, that game, like I said, you had to take your lumps. You couldn't, unless you had ungodly levels of natural talent when it came to video games. And I didn't know anybody like that. Everybody I know that played Defender had to take their lumps. You know, the game was way hard. It was re it was brutally hard. You know, I mean, when I was reading, um, how to master video games. Tom Hirschfeld said it himself. It's like, this is a game where if you do not know what you're doing, you'll be run off this machine inside of 30 seconds. And it's true. <laughs> I know because that's what happened to me the very first time I played Defender. I got run off that machine inside of 30 seconds to four, 30 to 45 seconds. That's what happened to me. But getting back to the original point, I went off on another tangent. Like I said, this is what happens. You know, for those who are still listening to this, thank you. <laughs> I know that it can get a little too tedious, but this is how my brain works. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, it, without trying to sound like I'm on some sort of pity trip, I want to ask Mark why he was so nice to me. Because almost any, everybody else do who was a regular at that arcade was not maybe one or two other guys who are actually, you know, at the very least neutral towards me, if not decent, you know, there weren't that many. And, you know, Mark took, you know, Mark took me under his wing, you know, and, you know, I'm going to ask him that. That's going to be a question I'm going to ask him in an interview. If, of course, by the time you hear this on the road segment, um, if the interview hasn't happened already, <laughs> but yeah, so just in closing, it didn't, it took me a long time to realize just how lucky I was when it came to having video games in, uh, in my, uh, in my, in my city and around my city, you know, cause there were a bunch of places to go. And I would do everything I could to get to those places when I wanted to go to those places. Take buses, 
you know, take trains, walk, bum rides off of family members, you know, you know, tag along with friends if they would allow it, so so forth and so on. But, you know, yeah, I'm lucky that way. And I think it's one of the reasons why I have the perspective on gaming that I have, you know, because I was able to play a good number of machines, you know, from 70, I'd say probably from 75 all the way to, you know, when I left Bridgeport in 93, you know, and I was really lucky that way. And, you know, um, when I would see, like, when I went to the arcade in Brighton and I saw a Space Zap machine, the only other place I saw Space Zap was um, the Midway when it came to town. That was the only other place I saw Space Zap. I mean, I read about Space Zap because um, Tom Hirschfeld covered it in his book, but that's the only other place I saw it. <coughs> Excuse me that's a sign that I've been talking to way too much for way too long. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I'm extremely lucky and fortunate that I was able to have what I had in terms of arcades back in the day, even though at the time I didn't appreciate it because I was always trying to get to these places. Some I could get to easy, you know, Spanky's easy, uh, Trumbull Mall easy. Um, but Arnie's Place, not so easy. Milford Wreck, not so easy. Um, Gompers, not so easy. Um, you know, and it was, it was things like that. You know, it was that, that kind, it was that kind of thing for me. And I didn't realize what I had. You know, I was always trying to get to the next thing. I mean... I want, I mean, one of the reasons before I left, then this will be the last thing, but one of the reasons why I went to, um, New York City, like, the week before I left to, left Bridgeport to go to Florida, to move to Florida, one of the reasons why I wanted to do that is because I always had wanted to go to New York City and go to Midtown Manhattan and do arcade hunting. I always wanted to do it. And I couldn't. I didn't have the... I could have done it in a couple of instances, but there was always something else going on. That's just how it was with me. There's just always something else going on. And it was just one of those things where I couldn't get the money together. But when I was about to go to... Um, when I was about to go to... Uh, Florida, moved to Florida, I went, you know, I, and this is the week my grandfather died, and I just didn't want to be around the family. I mean, I did everything, you know, I did everything that I could, you know, not could, but I did all of the obligations for family, and I basically just said, I'm taking Saturday, I'm going down to New York City, I'm going to go walk around, I'm going to go hang out. And that was a nice little adventure that I had. It really was, you know. <laughs> Needless to say that, what, 27, 28 years later that, you know, the New York City that 
is now is nowhere near what it was then. <laughs> and that was even after Giuliani started cleaning up New York City, quote unquote. And that was back in the like early or back in like the 70s and 80s. New York was a dangerous place. New York City was really dangerous. You know, you had to know what you you had to have your head on a swivel, you know, going through any of the five boroughs. Maybe not so much Manhattan, but there were places even in Manhattan you knew that you would be in massive trouble if you, you know, wandered into those places. <laughs> I could go on and on about that in my first uh, solo adventure in New York City, but I won't do that right now. Um, I'm at a stop and I've been talking for too long. So anyway, um, yeah, I'll just cut it here. This is Brian saying, have fun out there. Good gaming. Stay safe. Be smart. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.